Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a hot apple cider. I'm drinking some ginger ale. I didn't feel right drinking alcohol during an episode that revolves around drunk driving and Dell has given up alcohol for Lent this year. So with all of that being said, let's get into the story of the infamous affluenza teen. Our case starts on the night of June 15, 2013 in Burleson, Texas. The Boyles family was enjoying a night in and watching a movie. Eric and Holly Boyles' 21-year-old daughter Shelby was home on a break from nursing school. Holly and Shelby noticed a commotion outside and saw that Brianna Mitchell's SUV had spun out in front of their home. The Boyles assisted her in calling for help. Not far away, the Jennings family was wrapping up their son Evan's high school graduation party. Around 11 p.m., youth pastor Brian Jennings packed up his truck and set out to return tables and chairs to his church. 11-year-old Lucas McConnell and another young boy were in the car with him when they noticed that a disabled vehicle was outside of the Boyles' home. Jennings left his truck to see if they needed any help. In the same neighborhood, just seven doors down, 16-year-old Ethan Couch was having a party. Ethan and a group of friends, and friends of friends, spent the night playing beer pong and taking shots of Everclear. One of the partygoers said she needed to go to a convenience store, and the entire group decided to go to this store with her. They hopped in Ethan's truck, which was owned by his parents' company, and took off at 70 miles an hour with passengers in the cab and bed of the truck. No one was wearing a seatbelt, and Ethan was also driving on a restricted license. Ethan quickly lost control of the truck, swerved into a ditch, sideswiped the disabled SUV, and plowed into Brianna Mitchell, Brian Jennings, Holly Boyles, and Shelby Boyles, killing them all instantly. His truck then crashed into Jennings' parked truck, which still had Lucas McConnell and another boy inside, before finally flipping over and hitting a tree. Jennings' truck was thrown across the road and hit another vehicle. Eric Boyle said it felt like an earthquake had taken place. Debris and bodies scattered the road. Police said this was one of the worst crime scenes they'd ever witnessed. In addition to the four people killed, nine were injured, including two of Ethan's passengers, one of whom, Sergio Molina, was left paralyzed and with a severe brain injury that has left him with blinking as his only form of communication. Onlookers did their best to help the victims. Two neighbors of the Boyles found a passed-out teenager in a ditch a quarter mile down the road from the accident. He said his name was Ethan Couch and told them he'd, quote, help them get out of all of this, end quote. He somehow managed to free himself from the crash and walk away from the scene. At the hospital, Ethan's blood alcohol level was shown to be three times the legal limit for an adult. And keep in mind, this was three hours after the crash had occurred. He also had traces of THC, Valium, and other drugs in his system. Police quickly began interviewing eyewitnesses. They interviewed Garrett Ballard, Ethan's best friend, and Star Teague, Ethan's ex-girlfriend, who were both at Ethan's party and in Ethan's car. Teague stated the group began drinking at 6 p.m. that night. At some point, they drove to Walmart to steal beer and returned back to Ethan's home. Then Teague, who had not been drinking, wanted to go to a convenience store. Everyone at the party, even those who had been drinking, knew Ethan had too much to drink and claimed they tried to convince him not to drive. Teague claimed she told Ethan to slow down once they were in the car, but he responded by driving into oncoming traffic. 
he swerved to miss colliding with the oncoming car and set off the deadly chain of events. And there was no evidence Ethan had ever hit his brakes. So who was Ethan Couch? Ethan was the son of Fred and Tanya Couch, who at the time of the accident was living alone in the family's 4,000 square foot home, prepping it to be sold, while his parents lived at their new 7,000 square foot home in Fort Worth. The couple owned a multi-million dollar sheet metal business and had a rocky marriage. They also faced numerous run-ins with the law. Fred Couch was arrested in 1992 on a DUI charge and during the stop allegedly told the police officer, quote, I make more in a day than you do in a year, end quote. Court records also show that he was convicted of a misdemeanor assault in 2000. The couple was also fined for a variety of traffic violations including a 2003 incident where Tanya was charged with the misdemeanor offense of reckless driving. They divorced for the first time in 2006 with Tanya and her daughter from a previous marriage claiming Fred was abusive. During the divorce proceedings, nine-year-old Ethan told a social worker that he didn't want to be put in the middle of his parents and that they, quote, yelled at each other a lot, end quote. The social worker described Ethan as polite and patient. After the divorce, Ethan primarily lived with his mom, and she allegedly referred to him as her, quote, protector. He slept most nights in a separate bed that his mother had moved into her bedroom. Fred and Tanya remarried in 2011. At 13, Ethan's parents began to let him drive their cars. A teacher alleged that she told Fred that Ethan wasn't allowed to drive to school. Fred responded by saying he would, quote, buy the school, end quote. And when that didn't happen, they decided to homeschool Ethan. Ethan regularly drank and friends had seen him drive drunk multiple times before the accident. Four months before the fatal crash, Ethan was spotted peeing in a parking lot next to his mother's truck by an officer at 1 a.m. The officer spoke to Ethan and discovered a naked, passed out 14-year-old girl, a can of beer, and a bottle of vodka in the truck. Though he had allegedly broken at least six laws that night, Ethan was only issued tickets for consumption and possession of controlled substances by a minor. He was required to complete community service hours and an alcohol awareness class, but that did not happen. Tanya would later admit to helping Ethan lie about this incident to his father. The prosecutor, Richard Alpert, was determined to not let Ethan get away with this crime. He charged Ethan with four counts of intoxicated manslaughter and two counts of intoxicated assault and asked for 20 years in jail. After the crash, his parents sent Ethan to the Newport Academy, a $100,000 treatment program for teens in Newport Beach, California. The program includes yoga, cooking classes, and equine therapy for its patients. While Ethan was away, his parents hired some of the best defense attorneys in the area. Their defense team called on psychologist Dr. G. Dick Miller to help the court realize Ethan needed counseling, not jail time. Ethan pleaded guilty to all four accounts of intoxicated manslaughter, and the case went directly to the sentencing hearing. Dr. Miller gave testimony stating Ethan suffered from affluenza, meaning that this crime happened because Ethan was a child of privilege whose parents never told him no or gave him any accountability for his actions and therefore didn't know the difference between right and wrong and felt that the rules and laws did not apply to him. Dr. Miller claimed that Ethan's parents had failed him and that he had the emotional age of a 12-year-old. Dr. Miller also said, quote, the teen never learned to say that you're sorry if you hurt someone. If you hurt someone, you send him money, end quote. And, quote, 
He never learned that sometimes you don't get your way. He had the cars and he had the money. He had freedoms that no young man would be able to handle, end quote. Judge Jean Boyd seemingly agreed and sentenced Ethan to 10 years probation and time in a rehab facility. The public outrage and scrutiny began almost immediately, and Judge Boyd actually had to be removed from the courtroom by bailiffs because of the negative reaction from the crowd. Many felt the affluenza defense was just a ridiculous joke. Lucas McConnell's father said he felt the judge had, quote, spit in my face, end quote. Eric Boyle said, quote, money always seems to keep couch out of trouble. Ultimately today, I felt that money did prevail. If he had been any other youth, I feel like the circumstances would have been different, end quote. However, the defense team praised Judge Boyd's decision and said that it would serve as an opportunity for Ethan to turn his life around and get the help he needed. Both Judge Boyd and Dr. Miller spoke to the media to defend their decisions. Dr. Miller would later say he wished he hadn't used the word affluenza. Judge Boyd retired in 2014 shortly after this case. Ethan began an eight-month stay in a state rehab facility. Seven of the victims' families brought about civil lawsuits against the couches and their business. Five of the suits were settled via group mediation, but the McConnell family didn't settle quite as easily. Their son, Lucas, who again was 11 at the time, was injured in the crash and felt that the entire Couch family needed to be held responsible. As part of their civil case, the entire Couch family and Dr. Miller gave taped depositions. During the depositions, Fred testified that he knew Ethan had lied to him about drinking on at least one occasion, and Tanya admitted to letting Ethan borrow her truck after Fred had revoked his driving privileges. The McConnells ended up settling out of court with the couches in October 2015. It did not take their case to trial. They felt making the couches deposition video public showed the world who they really were. Later in 2015, a video of Ethan, now 18, was filmed at a party playing beer pong and therefore violating his probation surfaced on Twitter. He had also recently missed visits with his probation officer. A juvenile court equivalent of an arrest warrant was issued for Ethan on December 11, 2015, after his probation officer was not able to reach him. Tanya Couch, who was divorced once again from Fred, was also missing. It appeared they had some type of going away party before taking off. Law enforcement called on the public to help find them, and the U.S. Marshals and FBI were involved in this manhunt. Ethan and Tanya were on the run for three weeks before being captured in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Tanya was charged with hindering the apprehension of a felon, and her bail was set at $1 million, but was then lowered to $75,000. In February 2016, Ethan's case was moved to an adult court, and in April of that year, Judge Wayne Salvant ordered the now 19-year-old to serve four consecutive sentences of 180 days for the four people he killed, totaling two years in prison. He was released in April 2018 and was required to wear an ankle monitor, an alcohol-detecting patch, submit to drug testing, abide by a 9 p.m. curfew, and several other conditions. In 2019, a judge allowed Ethan to remove his ankle monitor, which the Tarrant County DA's office was not notified about. He was arrested once again in 2020 for violating his probation, but was released a day later because they couldn't tell if his positive THC drug patch was from legal CBD or illegal marijuana. And as of now, that is the last the public has heard from Ethan Couch. This is the very 
notable and out there and unique case. Do you remember when this was first on the news, Del? Because I definitely do. Yeah, I definitely remember. It was one of those weird cases because it was the first time I remember like the class systems clashing in a way. Like what happens when rich people interact with the criminal justice system versus what typically happens when poor people interact with the criminal justice system. Yeah, it's very obvious in this case. First off, he was able to get a good defense team that came up with what ended up being a good defense. And we were able, as the public, to see that his privilege did prevail, I guess you could say. And I remember this because I feel like our country really kind of came together to hate him. I didn't hear anybody defending him at the time. I still don't, other than his defense attorney still saying that the judge made a great decision. Right. And they're bound by ethics to say that, you know, you don't expect someone's lawyer to come out and say, oh yeah, my client was guilty. If you look at OJ's lawyer's You never hear them come out and say like, oh yeah, I'm glad I did a really good job getting OJ off of that murder. As a lawyer, there's a certain ethical thing. So I don't think his lawyers will ever come out and say that they're upset that he got off or they think that he should have had more time. Definitely not. And Del, you and I kind of talked about this before recording, but ultimately the defense team did their job as controversial as It is how, regardless of how pissed off people were and how offended the victims felt, they did their job. Exactly. And everyone has a constitutional right to a lawyer. Like, it's in there. And when it's not you, it's very easy to say, well, why did his lawyers do that? Why did he get that? Well, put the shoe on the other foot and think of if you were in that situation, what type of counsel would you want? Would you want one like Ethan Couch got? Or would you want one like the countless people in jail right now for crimes that they didn't commit because they didn't have an effective lawyer? Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that I agree with this affluenza defense because I do think it is bullshit like a lot of other people said. Regardless of how much privilege, how much wealth he had, to say that, oh, he's so privileged she doesn't understand is bullshit. What do you think? I agree. I look at it as the more money you have, the more privilege you have, the more opportunities you've had to learn the lessons of how to function in a society. And I I will say, I do think his parents are, they're to blame for his behavior 100%. And do I think they neglected him? Definitely. Do I think that they could have worked together better as parents to discipline him and give him doses of reality when he needed to, of course. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that constantly comes up in cases like this is whether we should hold the parents accountable. And I don't think we can in any legal sense, but just in a moral sense of them not teaching him the lessons that parents should be teaching their children. I'm not a parent, but when I become one, I definitely want to make sure my child knows no matter what we have, no matter what things you know I will do for you, such as helping you if you're in a tricky situation, you are responsible for your actions. And if you do something wrong and there's consequences attached to that, you need to deal with the consequences. 
100%. I also don't have children, but I'll be damned if I have a kid and they're an entitled little prick. Like, that will not happen on my watch. But I agree, Del. I don't think the parents should be held accountable. And I know a lot of people were feeling that way. But ultimately, Ethan made the decision to drink and drive on his own. Maybe if his parents were at the house and they wanted him to go out and they knew he was drunk, then you they would have... Um, some responsibility, but ultimately, no. We saw too how the parents clearly thought they were above the law, especially Fred. His dad, he had how many run-ins? He's out there saying to police officers, I'm better than you. I make more money than you. He was also um, arrested for impersonating a cop too. And he's been violent with people at his jobs. He's a messy person, I guess, to say the least. Right. And it seems like, unfortunately, Ethan emulated a lot of the bad behaviors that he saw from his father. The only difference is Ethan's replication of his father's behaviors came with very deadly results for four young individuals. I'm also thinking back to what parent would let their child drive at 13? Like maybe, you know, in an empty parking lot. He was driving to school. I think one of the things that got me was the response like even at 13 Ethan was taught that he was above everything like I wasn't going around thinking that my mom would come in and disrespect teachers but Ethan at 13 already had that in his mind he already had the mindset that how dare you tell me what I can and can't do if you watch the deposition tapes, which I'm pretty sure you can find on YouTube, some of them at least, someone is asking Fred Couch, Ethan's dad, did you teach your son that you're better than people, that the laws don't apply to you? In so many words, that's what they're asking him. And he says no, which, I mean, I'm sure he never outright said like, son, the laws don't apply to us. We can do whatever we want because we're so wealthy. But that's something a child will pick up on through actions and language. It doesn't need to be some direct statement told to a kid. Right. And it's like that with plenty of behaviors. So it's very strange to me that Ethan's parents seem to want to remove themselves from the role model position that they play in their own son's life. Yeah, they're a very strange family. I think it's probably for the best that Fred and Tanya are divorced now. It seems like an all-around very toxic situation. And it is a shame that Ethan had to be exposed to that, that any child would have to be exposed to something like that. Right. And I do want to clarify that we don't think that this is all well-to-do kids. Plenty of well-to-do parents are great parents that make sure that their child knows that irregardless of the financial privilege that they have, they should always be respecting people and making sure that they're giving back it's just in this particular case those lessons weren't taught mm -hmm, well said we saw ethan violate his parole and then last year he also got into a little trouble with a positive thc level on his drug test which ended up not really going anywhere but del do you think we'll see him reoffend somehow and return to jail so a part of me wants to say no he's not going to reoffend he's learned his lesson and he's going to try to do better however not having a concrete update on what he's doing now does make me nervous because idle hands are the devil's playground in a lot of ways and he's shown that 
when he is idle, when he's not doing anything, he is participating in very destructive activities. I'm not really sure either. I think no news is good news. So if we really hadn't heard anything for two years after he was released from jail, then maybe he's starting to turn over a new leaf. I'm sure too, as he gets older, because he's in his 20s now, as you get older, maybe the drinking and the drugs and the partying is not as exciting as it used to be as a teenager. But Honestly, if we heard tomorrow that he was arrested again for driving while intoxicated or something, I wouldn't be surprised. So like we said, the affluenza defense was national news and widely ridiculed. Affluenza, so everyone is clear, is not recognized by the American Psychological Association as a mental illness. It was popularized in the late 90s by Jesse O'Neill, who is a granddaughter of a past president of General Motors, and she mentioned this term in her book about the psychology of affluent people. It was never meant to justify bad behavior, and Jesse O'Neill says that, as well as other psychologists. By definition, affluenza is a psychological malaise supposedly affecting wealthy young people, symptoms of which include a lack of motivation, feelings of guilt, and a sense of isolation. I know when I think of affluenza, I kind of think of Gossip Girl and maybe like the rich people on the OC and Laguna Beach, just people that are kind of out of touch from reality and just so involved in this wealthy affluent culture that they're surrounded by and we do often see wealthy young people struggling with drug addiction substance use failing classes sometimes skipping school this is all stuff um jesse o'neill mentions in her book when she's talking about affluenza yeah and affluenza is something that's so strange because you can definitely see where Jessie O'Neill was coming from when she was writing her book on it and other psychologists that have studied it. But it's also something that it's very hard for the common person to understand because in a lot of ways, we associate money with freedom, money with happiness. So we kind of get taken aback by seeing people that have never struggled, really having a hard time getting along in life, really having a hard time figuring out their place and everything. And it's always a situation of not being rich enough. Like, oh, my parents are worth $50 million when that person's parents is worth $100 million, which means I'm not good enough. Where you have people that would be happy if their parents were worth $5,000 a year because it means their life would be substantially better than it is now. That's really interesting. And I think it is very easy for people to just kind of brush it off as like, oh, poor little rich boy, rich people problems, who cares? But I don't like seeing anyone suffer from substance abuse. I have heard of other studies of like adolescents from upper class backgrounds struggling more with anxiety and depression and mental health issues like that and feeling pressure from their parents and maybe society to just live up to something. I think that's especially true in cases of their parents being someone that came from less fortunate backgrounds. It's like, well, if I can do it, that means it's in my DNA and my kids now, not only do they have to live up to what I did, they need to excel. We need to be constantly building up our family tree, building up our generational wealth. And that pressure is constantly put on them, 
when maybe they want to take an artistic route. Maybe they don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Maybe they don't want to go into the family business. Maybe there's someone that just wants to relax and just be human. And in a lot of ways, when all that pressure is put on you, you're not able to be yourself. You're always trying to be a reflection of your parents. Mm -hmm. And you know what this kind of reminds me of somehow? The college admission scandal. Regardless of whether some of the teenagers involved in that knew what their parents were doing or not, I think a lot of them did face pressure to be this person that maybe they really weren't for their parents or their pressure. I have to go to this school and continue on the family legacy. I have to do this and keep up with the public's opinion of me. Even for the parents too, I'm sure there was some influence of well, my kid has to go to college because that is such a norm in our society. Right. Yeah. I remember Lori Loughlin's daughter, Jay, she had tied her whole career to her college experience in a way. Like it was the end all be all. A lot of her followers were expecting it of her and expecting her to go to the best school so that they can follow her along. A lot of her sponsorship from her YouTube channel was tied to her college experience. So yeah, if you think your whole life is tied to getting into this one school, I can see why you as a parent would want to go to the ends of the earth to try to make that possible for your child. And this is by no means defending what the people involved in the college admission scandal did, but it's not the first time people have ever done this. They've kind of you know, helped their children get into schools. Jared Kushner's family made tons of donations to Harvard. And where do you think he ended up going? Going off of this discussion, there was a study from Dr. Sunia Luthar, and it showed that 20% of upper middle class adolescents believed their parents would help get them out of a sticky situation at school. I feel like Ethan probably would have been in that 20% if she you know, had talked to him as well. And it's clear that they did get him out of situations at school. I mean, he ended up getting homeschooled because his parents didn't really want to deal with the school. And I don't think Ethan was a bad student. Still, driving to school as a 13-year-old, the teacher felt that was, you know, breaking the rules, breaking the law, and his family didn't care. And then that also has repercussions because when he was pulled over four months before the accident, we saw that he didn't complete anything that the court had asked him to. I think he probably paid the fines, but he didn't go to alcohol awareness class and he didn't complete the community service. And I think all he had to do was eight hours of community service in a month. That's nothing. I wanted to mention a quote from Dr. Luthar too, that I think really sums up this issue of two separate justice systems in America and the double standard we have. So she was quoted as saying, what is the likelihood if this was an African-American inner city kid that grew up in a violent neighborhood to a single mother who is addicted to crack and he was caught two or three times? What is the likelihood that the judge would excuse his behavior and let him off because of how he was raised? Yeah, I definitely understand what Dr. Luthar is getting at. There's definitely a strong dichotomy between class systems. I don't think that it's a race thing, though. I don't think that it's a black versus white criminal justice system issue. It's a 
rich people have access to things that poor people don't. Rich people have access to different experts that are expensive to testify. They have access to things like private investigators that can help on their case. And poor people, poor people usually have to rely on public defenders. And unfortunately, if you have a public defender, it's a very low likelihood that you're going to be able to get private investigators, different experts, additional testing like DNA or fingerprint testing. You're not able to have those resources, which means that you're less likely to be able to use a defense like the affluence of defense. I think that's a really good point. And we talked a little bit about that in the OJ Simpson case as well, how because of his wealth, he was able to get the dream team of defense. That's what, you know, that was the nickname for his defense team and they pulled through. So let's look at a case that did have a poor defendant in it that Judge Gene Boyd presided over. And that's the case of Eric Bradley Miller. In February 2004, Miller left home with $10 that he had gotten from his grandfather and he said he was going to go out and rent a movie. But instead, he bought a bottle of vodka, stole a pickup truck, and got into a drunk driving accident that killed a 19-year-old motorist. Miller did have kind of a rough childhood. I don't believe his mom was in his life. He was raised primarily by his grandfather. And again, he was not well off financially. He went to trial as a juvenile with a court-appointed attorney and lost. Judge Jean Boyd said, quote, The court is aware you had a sad childhood, but you are fortunate to have a grandfather who is committed and loves you. And she continued by saying, I hope you will take advantage of the services offered by the Texas Youth Commission and turn your life around, end quote. And she gave Miller a 20-year sentence. And he was paroled in 2008, but he did uh, have some trouble with the law again in 2011. And I'm not sure if he is currently um, on parole or out of jail or free. I'm not sure what his status is. But a lot of people were kind of outraged and wondered, why did Ethan Couch, who killed four people, get 10 years probation and get sent to a rehab facility, especially when the prosecutor was asking for 20 years. And Eric Miller, he killed one person and he was sentenced to 20. I will say with Eric Miller, we do need to remember that he stole a car, which is a felony. So that is just another law that he violated during uh, this tragic accident. Do you have any thoughts on Eric Miller and how he was treated, Del? I think that this case is an example of him getting the right sentence and really illustrates that Ethan Couch didn't get the right sentence. With the additional crime that Eric committed, I think his sentence was fair. You stole a car, you killed someone. I am totally supportive of him going to jail. And like the judge said, you know, using the resources that are available within the system to help get rehabilitated so that when you come out, hopefully you'll be able to do better. He did mess up one time, and I'm hoping that that was just a one-time thing. Whereas in Ethan Couch's situation, I feel like this case highlights that there was more time that could have been doled out in this case. It wasn't a case where you had to look at him as a, well, he's just a first-time offender. How can we jail a first-time offender? Well, you can. 
you can look at the case. You can look at what services are needed by the defendant if you're going for a rehabilitation side of the criminal justice system perspective. And you can say, okay, Ethan, I think that you need to spend five to 10 years in jail, utilize the rehabilitation services so that when you come out, you truly understand not only the consequences of your actions, but you also have the resources to deal with any underlying issues that you have going on. I think I agree. And I think some people have kind of twisted this into like a wrong versus right thing because both boys were in the wrong. I don't know if I mentioned this, but I do want to be clear that Eric Miller was 16. Um, so was Ethan Couch. Both of them were in the wrong for what they were doing. And I completely agree. Ethan should not have gotten 10 years probation. I don't blame that one victim's family member for saying it felt like the judge had spit in his face because that is frankly insulting. He killed four people. He paralyzed someone and he injured several others. He ruined so many people's lives that night. And I don't think 10 years probation really says that and shows him that. This was the first time I guess he had, you know, committed intoxicated manslaughter, but he did get citations before for drinking and I guess driving when that police officer saw him in the parking lot. And some victim's family members said he didn't really seem to show remorse. I mean, he did own up to what he did. He never tried to say he was not guilty. I think they said he seemed really zoned out and he wasn't really looking at anyone, which I do understand, you know, he's 16 years old. Grief hits everyone differently, especially for someone that we know has really had no accountability in their life. From what I know, he didn't really seem that upset by what he did to these families. Right, because in a lot of ways, the four murders, as they should, gets the most highlight. But like you said, there was a lot of destruction that he left in that path to killing four people. You have someone that is permanently paralyzed because of him, because of his actions. And we have to mention too, Eric Boyles lost his wife and his daughter. His whole family was destroyed because of Ethan. People keep bringing up the fact that this was a first time offense when they justify the sentence that he got. And that doesn't matter to me. I don't care that it's your first offense. Your first offense was killing four people. Like, what is it? Do we need every person to commit a minor offense before we can charge them for the major offenses that they're committing? Is that the type of criminal justice system that we want where as long as it's your first time doing something, you can get away basically scot-free? That's such a good point. I wish I knew if it had been Eric Miller's first offense. I'm not sure on that. Judge Boyd was a very controversial figure, you could say, in this case. To me, she ultimately agreed that Ethan had never faced consequences. That was the affluenza defense. But then she gave him no consequences for his actions. And there was some controversy with what type of facility he would be going to for rehab, which was part of his sentence. Would it be a state or a private facility? Ethan's defense team wanted him to go back to the rehab in Newport Beach, California. And Judge Boyd seemingly agreed. I don't have a direct quote from her in front of me, and I'm not sure if she said this during sentencing or afterward, but she essentially told 
the public and the couches that she was aware of the Texas State facilities, but Ethan needed help that they probably couldn't provide. He did do a stint in a Texas State Rehabilitation Center, but people were a little upset with her statement. I think you could take it two ways. Either Ethan is just so far gone, this program can't help him. Or, and I think this is how a lot of people took it, that the state programs are not good and I know that, so go get help somewhere else. And state facilities, I think in any state, don't have great reputations, and in Texas at the time they were facing massive budget cuts. The Guardian news outlet was quoted as saying, the tragedy this case highlights is all the children who cannot do that and will instead enter an ever-growing, ever-problematic U.S. criminal system that will most likely fail them. So again, we're going back to rich people get better defenses and they can afford better treatment. Right. And unfortunately, when it comes to a lot of state-run programs, especially in states that don't have a rehabilitation view of the criminal justice system, programs like this are underfunded. And I don't think that the solution is to just simply ship off the ones that can afford it to other programs that are better, but to bring that quality of service into the state-run system. Even if you have to privatize it, do that to make sure that everyone that a judge would want to sentence to that type of program is getting high quality services. I would love to see those kinds of services just, I mean, in general at a more accessible level, but particularly for juveniles in the justice system. Give these places more funding, especially because many juveniles in the justice system do suffer from substance use and mental health issues. Another fact we wanted to point out is that a majority of kids in the juvenile justice facilities, I believe in Texas, were youth of color with only 18% of the population being described as Anglo, and that was a 2013 statistic. So at the heart of this case and this defense is what is appropriate for a juvenile? What is the best sentence for them? Should we focus on punishment? Should we focus on rehabilitation? That is a question that a lot of people are talking about in regards to all of America's justice systems. But let's take a look at some other cases that were similar to Ethan's and what common sentences are for these teenagers. So it's common for teens involved in drunk driving accidents to receive rehab and not jail time. They can also face suspended license, fines, community service, probation for DUIs as well. Ethan's sentence was consistent with most juvenile DWI manslaughter cases in Texas for first-time offenders. And one of Ethan's attorneys was quoted as saying, very infrequently does a violent, non-intentional crime land a juvenile in jail. We saw a 17-year-old drunk driver in Georgia kill his 16-year-old girlfriend while street racing. The car was overturned and struck a tree, and the 17-year-old was charged with DUI and vehicular manslaughter and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Another teenager, Austin Donovan Hall, lost control of his car while driving 119 miles an hour while intoxicated. The 15-year-old he was driving with was ejected from the car and died, unfortunately. And another teenage passenger 
was in the hospital for months due to the severity of his injuries. And Hall, who was 18 at the time of his hearing, was sentenced to 18 months in jail. And I'm not sure what state that was in, but in the United States, laws vary by you know state to state. I also wanted to point out too, while I was researching, a lot of times teenagers will be sentenced to something like 15 years or 20 years, but they tend to not serve that full um, sentence. And that was the case for Eric Miller. He was out after four years. So that is something else, I guess, to consider with sentencing. Right. It's always the question of should certain crimes have mandatory minimums? For me, driving while drunk and you kill someone so vehicular manslaughter i absolutely think that there is a minimum number for me five to ten years that you should be serving behind bars get the help you need in prison i don't think that probation or rehab is enough i understand that you have a substance abuse disorder i understand that you have other traumatic things that may have led you to turn to alcohol but i don't think it's okay to say that you can go ahead and kill someone, just be the right age and have a problem. And we're going to let you all basically scot-free. I think I would support something like that, Dell. And I do believe in our state that the sentence for adults who commit the same crime, um, the intoxicated manslaughter, it is five to 10 years. I don't know how many times we said the word affluenza in this episode, but affluenza was one of the most notable, bizarre defenses that helped a defendant seek a lighter sentence, but there are many others. Yeah, so one that definitely came to mind as we were researching this case was the Twinkie defense. The Twinkie defense came about as Dan White's lawyers were defending him for the double murder of Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone. And while the lawyers never actually used the term Twinkie defense, what they argued was that he suffered from diminished capacity as a result of depression. And one of the symptoms was a change in diet from healthy foods to Twinkies. And of course, the way the media worked is they took that one portion of the defense and they then called it the Twinkie defense. I remember thinking about how ridiculous it is that someone could claim that sugar was the reason why they murdered. And if sugar is the reason why people murder, we should have a much higher homicide rate because sugar is in everything. Another one of these crazy and wacky defenses is the sleepwalking defense which basically states that a person committed a crime and didn't know it because they were sleepwalking. And one of the cases that I wanted to highlight was the case of Scott Folleter, which he was a resident of Phoenix, Arizona, and he was accused of murdering his wife by stabbing her 44 times in January of 1997. According to witnesses, he was also seen holding his wife's head underwater when he actually went to trial the prosecution claimed that this crime was premeditated because father had changed his clothes he had put the murder weapon in a tupperware container and just general cleanup stuff and they argued that his actions were too complex for him to have been sleepwalking but his defense attorneys were arguing and they actually brought experts on 
to state that no, just because you're sleepwalking doesn't mean that you can't complete complex tasks. And this was the case of a wacky defense not working because he was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And that's not the only sleepwalking defense there has been. A Canadian man in 2005 was charged with rape and the man didn't deny that a sexual encounter happened. I believe it was with his girlfriend and he did not deny that the incident was non-consensual, but he opted for the sex somnia defense. So in other words, he forced himself on the woman while he was sleepwalking and just didn't realize what was going on until she had pushed him away. And he was actually found still wearing a condom. I would think that that would be considered a complex action that you wouldn't really be able to do when you're sleepwalking. But the jury, I guess, didn't agree. And in 2007, he was acquitted of the crime and it was shown that he did have a history of sleepwalking. We also have the PMS defense. Sandy Craddock in 1980 stabbed a co-worker to death. She stabbed her three times in the heart, actually. And their defense was that Sandy was PMSing. While she was not acquitted, she was convicted of manslaughter and forced to take progesterone, which is essentially just birth control. I believe Sandy did go on to attempt to kill a police officer, so maybe they should have charged her with something a little heavier. So I think this next defense is pretty crazy. So Mohammed Anwar, a Muslim man in Scotland, was caught going 34 miles above the speed limit and faced a ban on driving privileges. However, as a business owner, and more importantly, a married man, he could not afford to let that happen. So his defense was that he was married to two women, which I do believe was true. And in order to be this amazing husband, he needed to be able to drive back and forth from their houses. And he, you know, was a business owner, so he had to maintain his business too. So I guess the only thing he felt he could do was speed to make everybody happy. And he didn't get off the hook for going above the speed limit, but he was able to keep his driving privileges and he only had to pay a 200 pound fine and six penalty points on his record, which six seems like kind of a lot, but maybe Scottish driving laws are different. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the affluenza defense and Ethan Couch make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Dell signing off. Stay safe.